Brother Eddie's asked that we mark number 17, and we'll use that at the close of the lesson this evening, a bit later in our service, and perhaps it's again fair to echo what Brother Roger shared earlier. We each, I'm sure, are thankful that God's blessed us with this opportunity at the close of this first day of the week to assemble and to gather and to offer a worship unto the God whom we so dearly love and who, of course, has done so very much for each of us. As we assemble and gather, we again here have continued our journey throughout the Scriptures this year. We have read at this point passages from several books of the Bible, and that has brought us to almost 12% completion through the Word of God. You'll notice that this time, 141 chapters have been read. And as we continue our journey, we currently are in the books of Exodus in the Old Testament and about to begin the book of Mark in the New Testament. And tonight's lesson taken, as you noticed a moment ago from Jeff's reading, from a section fairly early on in the book of Exodus. I would invite you to notice as we do that, the other things on that slide. Exodus is certainly such a quick-moving book in the Old Testament in the sense that there are so many features and so many matters that quickly come before our mind. It's in that book we encounter that bush that though it was burning, it wasn't consumed. And it's in that book that we encounter those ten plagues that God rained down upon the Egyptians. And it's in that book that we find the children of Israel pursued by the Egyptians, the Red Sea before them, and there they were, apparently caught, but of course, God delivered them. It was in that book that we find them assembled at the foot of a mountain that smoked and quaked, and on that mountain God gave the Ten Commandments. And it was in that book that we find the explicit record of their construction of an interesting building called a tabernacle. One by one, as all those features of that book come before us, we see that they all pointed directly to something far grander and greater that was to lie from that point at some point in the future. Tonight, it's no different as we come to the scenes surrounding chapters 12 and 13. I'd invite you to notice as we come near the bottom of that slide that the whole subject of the book of Exodus really is the Exodus. That particular moment when the children of Israel were taken out of Egypt by the great deliverance of God and begun a journey to finally a land of promise. And so the name of the book patterned after its major event. And so tonight, you and I will look at the Exodus from particularly one standpoint, and that is to say the events there of chapter 12, verses 13 and 14. It is with that in mind, isn't it interesting that this book presents to us a great movement, a movement that really developed like this. In the book of Genesis, we saw God's especial blessings and His especial reference to a man and his generation those families that would come from Abraham. Now suddenly in this book, God's movement gives appreciation to this whole nation of Israel. This nation now had become so strong, so many, that it will behoove us to give thought tonight to the events of this chapter. I'd invite you to start like this. As we come to this appreciation, we notice that the name quite often given to that which is before us is that very interesting eight-letter word, the Passover. It all began, of course, with the Israelites. They were removed from Egyptian bondage because the Israelites actually were such that the Egyptians hastened to their exit. God, of course, promised that the firstborn would die. 
Nine plagues had been insufficient. The Pharaoh still had his heart hardened. The people were still, that is to say, the Egyptians unwilling to allow the people of Israel to leave. And we notice that God said, One more wonder I'm going to bring. One more event, and upon so doing, then the Pharaoh shall allow my people to leave. And when he did, there was a threat to the firstborn. We find in language that reads beginning in chapter number 11. Verse, beginning in verse 4, the text reads, And Moses said, Thus saith the Lord, about midnight will I go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sitteth upon the throne, even unto the firstborn of the maidservant that is behind the meal, and all the firstborn of beasts. You'll notice that with that there was to be a great cry coming out of Egypt. Even the Pharaoh's house would be impacted by this decree. You'll notice that with that said, we come, of course, to those interesting descriptions that God gave. You see, not only were these matters to have import for the Egyptians, not only were they to lose, of course, the firstborn, but we find that God gave His special reflections to His own people. It went like this. On the tenth day of the month, you take up a lamb. You keep that lamb up until the 14th day of that particular month, and then it even you slay it. You prepare it very carefully like this. You roast it with fire. You do not boil it. You do not fix it in any other way. You roast it. As you do that, upon producing the, the correct the completion of that particular preparation, you then at that point eat it with unleavened bread and herbs, those bitter herbs in fact. And you eat it with your staff in your hand, your shoes on your feet, and you eat it in haste that night. As you give thought to that interesting set of commandments, here again, that was of course for the children of Israel. But you'll notice much more was yet to come. That blood that you extract from that lamb, that animal, you take a bunch of hyssop and you in fact smear it upon the lentils and on the doorpost of your house and you eat it in that house and you do not go out that night. You stay there all night long. You and I might immediately recoil and wonder, what's the connection? The death angel was to pass, of course, through, and we noticed that God had stated something about blood to those that were His people. You'll notice on that slide we reached the point of appreciating as they partook of that meat that night. God's statements to them bring us to that particular text before. Verse 11 of Exodus 12, And thus shall ye eat it, with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And immediately we appreciate that usage of the word that would come to characterize this night for centuries, the Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt will I execute judgment. I am the Lord." And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That memorable event that evening. And I'm sure we each can, at least in the imagination of our heart, recognize that sure enough later that very evening... 
when in fact that death angel passed through and the cries of every family it would seem in Egypt were so abundant with grief. Their oldest boy, their oldest one, his life had been taken. The loss in Egypt, even touching the Pharaoh's house, wasn't it a monumental thing for then God to deliver the children of Israel? They'd put the blood on their doorposts, and sure enough, as the angel had passed through, they were spared. Death hadn't reigned supreme for them. Their family was still intact. Their loved ones were still near them. As you appreciate all those events, perhaps you can ponder with me some of those closing thoughts. Central to this event and central to the way in which it was brought about was blood. Blood taken from the Lamb. Blood that was put upon the doorpost. Blood that such that God said, when I see it, I will pass over you. They would never be able to forget the agency, the urgency, and the importance of that blood. Tonight, as we move from this point forward in the lesson, might you and I reflect also upon that title, Blood, Life, and Death. Notice that blood was the key that separated it for the Israelites. If they, by virtue of unbelief, if they, by virtue of carelessness, apathy, or otherwise, did not put the blood on the doorpost, they were subject to death. They were subject to the loss of the firstborn. And they were subject to the same penalty that the Egyptians, of course, faced. But on the other hand, if there was blood on the doorpost, if they had taken the lamb and used its blood as God had commanded, then they were spared, they were delivered, they were saved. It is in light of that that you and I might bring ourselves forward 3,500 years and ask about the events of today, the circumstances in this agency, this dispensation in which we live. It is with that in mind that we perhaps are ready for the following events and the following matters on these slides. In blood, such an interesting liquid, as we prepare to give thought to what comes next, there's no question any medical person, I'm sure, would be prepared and so very quick to lift high the elevation and banner of blood. Water is a special liquid, but it won't serve the purpose blood does. And there are many other special liquids, but blood alone is the one that is so vital, so essential, so needed for the various works of the human body. The cells that comprise your body and mind. There are trillions of them making up you and me. And every one of those cells is a virtual repository, a factory if you please, in which there is an ongoing continuous set of processes by which nutrients come to it. It performs its function and wastes are carried away. And blood is needed for all of it. Blood is what carries the oxygen to the various parts of your body and mind, and it carries from the cells the waste products that are in fact removed from the body. Without blood, you and I would be unable to function. Without blood, your body and mind would not be able to carry out the necessary matters needed for life. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Did you notice some of the initial matters on this slide? Every aspect, it seems, of that Passover pointed squarely down the stream of time some one and a half millennia unto the very nature of Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Every major portion, every major matter in it had Jesus Christ written all over it. 
you'll notice that Paul later in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7, he too would say, Christ is our Passover. When Jesus, or rather when Paul made that statement to that church in Corinth, he highlighted the beautiful reality of what so many of them understood that there had been in the days of the Jewish life and importance in Passover. But Paul, using present tense language, said that Christ is our Passover. You and I need not reflect upon a dumb animal, if you please. You and I need not attempt to rely upon the agency of the blood of a bull or goat or a lamb that never could take away sin, Hebrews 10.4. We rely upon the perfect one, that Son of God who Himself is our Passover. When you and I describe the Passover, namely the Christ, how often do we remember that He is referred to as a lamb, the Lamb of God? In John 1.29, John the Immerser on that occasion as he, of course, witnessed along with his followers the coming of this one named Christ. It was John who said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Even at that agency, even at that moment, John referred to him as the Lamb of God. John, of course, had grown up under the Judaistic system his father, Zacharias, his mother, Elizabeth, were in fact members of the priestly family. John knew very well what was involved in the matters on that day of the Lamb, the Passover day each year on that 14th day of the first month. And yet John could refer to Christ as the Lamb of God. Later we see in Revelation 5, when in the final chapter, the final book, I should say, the New Testament, there it was John, the Revelator, who was given that amazing vision of the throne of God. He saw one sitting on the throne, and in his right hand was a book sealed seven times. And we remember the next chapter, the one worthy to take the book, loose its seals, and reveal its contents was none other than the lion, L-I-O-N, of the tribe of Judah. That, of course, is Jesus, Hebrews seven fourteen, And in the very next verse, the very next verse, that lion of the tribe of Judah is called the Lamb. He is that beautiful, that majestic Lamb whose anthem is written later in that same chapter, verse number 12, in which we see so sweetly these words that so are descriptive of our Master. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. A sevenfold penultimate anthem to, of course, Jesus, the Passover, the Lamb of God. Is it any wonder in light of a statement like that one that it's easy to make a transition to our study of the New Testament, appreciating that that precious, precious blood that Jesus shed occupies a place so interestingly parallel to what we just saw in the Old Testament. When I see the blood, God said... On the doorpost, the top post, the side post, they were supposed to put it on all three. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. You and I now appreciate that since Christ is our Passover, a similar vein is of course apparent. God in, in essence says, when I see the blood, whose blood? Christ's blood. I will pass over you. Doesn't that highlight before us passages that can be developed like this? Jesus' blood must be applied. 
in the same way that they were hopeless and without any opportunity of salvation in that Old Testament era if there was no blood on the doorpost. So it is that if the application of Christ's blood has not been made, you too and I are hopeless. We are in a position to where there is no deliverance from the proverbial death angel. It might well be in light of those thoughts. No wonder we see that there's life in the blood, Leviticus 17.11. And isn't it still the case that there's life in the blood, Christ's blood, the blood of the Passover, the blood of the Lamb of God? I would ask you to notice with me verses like these. In Hebrews 9, beginning in verse number 11, we have a description there, a contrast between the blood of those bulls and calves and goats as it stands over against the precious blood of Christ. For you see, we are reminded in a passage like that one that you and I serve a tabernacle not made with hands. We serve, of course, in that tabernacle made without hands. That tabernacle that reminds us in verses 12, 13, and 14 of the precious blood of Christ that was given without spot or blemish and furthermore able to purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. One by one, what the blood of bulls and calves and goats could not do, Christ's blood can even purge the conscience. What amazing power is in that blood. Sometimes we sing a song, do we not? There's power in the blood. May we never lose sight of the urgency and the greatness of that power, especially as it leads us to verses like these. What did our Savior Himself expressly say in Matthew 26? On that very night prior to the moments of His own crucifixion, verse 28 of that chapter, He Himself said, This blood is the New Testament in, uh, this cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. On that occasion, as He instituted what we still call the Lord's Supper, He made reference to the cup and said it was representative of His blood, which was able to be in remission for sin. That blood, amazingly, beautifully, powerfully. We can't help but hearken back to that day in the book of Exodus. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. You may notice as we inch closer and closer, the bottom of that slide will prepare us for the next. As we noted earlier, without the blood on the doorpost, the death angel took the oldest, the, the firstborn, and there was death. There was no deliverance. There was such sadness and such crying. Bring yourself to our day. Without the application of the blood, there is no deliverance. Sin runs, reigns supreme. Oh, how we should thank God above for that blood of Christ and our opportunity to contact it and our opportunity to be covered in it. It is the concept of that covering that will take us to the next set of ideas. That covering, to be covered in it. What beautiful consideration there is in that sanctification. Mentioned by the Hebrew writer in Hebrews 13. For you see, Christ Jesus shed His blood without the gate, that you and I might be sanctified, that is to say, set apart for the service of God, and ready and capable and able to be a dutiful servant in His kingdom. Without that blood, there would not be that possibility the precious blood of Christ. 
isn't it told to you and me in 1 Peter 1, verses 19 and 20, that it is by the precious blood of Christ that you and I are redeemed, bought back from a devil's hell, and prepared and made ready to, in fact, journey onward toward heaven? It is the blood of Christ. We aren't purchased with money. We aren't purchased with the blood of some animal. We are purchased, redeemed, ransomed, if you will, by the precious blood of Christ. It is at this point that we perhaps might consider the following. John stated it like these, in these words in Revelation 1. It was there that he said that we are washed from our sins in His blood. To be washed. As often as you and I think about the agency, the operation of washing... We wash a plate, we wash our clothes, and we realize that removes contaminants, it removes that which tarnishes and mars, it removes that which is improper and inappropriate, and it puts that then into a state of cleanness, a state of readiness, a state of propriety. And yet we are told that in His blood we are washed from our sins. That washing, of course, occurs, that covering occurs in ways that we should develop a bit more thoroughly. I have tried to list it in these statements that are next. When the God of heaven looks down from His throne, and we realize that He reigns in absolute majesty there, and He looks down upon the creatures of His world, upon you and on me in particular, and He has an especial interest without question in your livelihood and in mine. May I ask, when He looks down at you, what does He see? And when He looks down at me, what does He see? You and I are told in the Scripture something very intriguing and interesting about that which He sees for certain individuals. And as we give thought to it, it takes us back again to that scene in Exodus 12. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. When He looks at you and when He looks at me, what does He see? Does he see an individual attempting to make his or her way to heaven based on their own meritorious works? Does he see an individual attempting and striving to labor beneath the banner of this life, attempting on good works alone to make way to heaven? If he does, then you and I have no hope. Our works by themselves can never lead us to a place of goodness before God sufficient for heaven. But you and I do appreciate that we find in the Scripture some statements like these. If a person submits to the act of baptism, having met those prerequisites of belief in Jesus, John 8, 24, those prerequisites including repentance and sin, Acts 2, 38, for those prerequisites including a verbal confession, Romans 10, verses 13 and following, then that person humbly and submissively immersed in water for the forgiveness of sins, that person rises to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. And we find on these occasions that then when God sees that individual, He sees the blood of His own Son. He sees the blood of Christ. And so when I speak to a faithful member of the body of Christ, when God looks at you from heaven... He sees the blood that His Son shed. He sees the precious 
guileless, sinless blood that Jesus shed that covers your sins and God sees in you a servant, a dutiful and faithful servant of His own. When I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And isn't it true on that day of judgment? Isn't it true on that final and fateful day when all nations shall be gathered before Him, Matthew 25, 31, that He also will continue to see that blood for those who are the faithful servants of His and those individuals will be in, not based upon their own meritorious righteousness, but based on their faithful and dutiful service to God who has allowed the blood of His Son to cover that person. When God sees that, that person will be allowed entrance to heaven. That precious soul will be allowed entrance to the grandest abode of all. But what does God see for those who have not submitted to baptism? For those who still are covered in their own sins, God sees those sins. And Habakkuk 1.13 as well as Psalm 5 verse 4 remind us that God will have no association with, no companionship with sin. For His eyes and His being are too perfect and too pure to behold iniquity. How tragic it is to contemplate God seeing my sin. Oh, may it never be. And may it never be for you. Because may we understand that when I see the blood, I will pass over you. As you and I think about verses that carry us beyond that one, no wonder we're prepared to think about some comparisons. Comparisons that challenge us to give thought to the very idea we've just developed. Comparisons that might well be stated like this. Think back to the parallel between Exodus 12 and various passages that we shall mention in the New Testament. That lamb that you and I noted, they on the tenth day of the month were to select and take that lamb. Jesus was selected. In Matthew 21, as He entered into the city of Jerusalem in what is often known as the, tri the triumphal entry, the God of heaven selected Him. Four days later, that lamb in the Old Testament was to be slaughtered and slain. It was to be done so near the close, the afternoon hour that day. In the New Testament era, our precious Savior had been selected that proper number of days earlier. The day of His crucifixion came. And you and I well remember, though He was nailed to the cross at nine in the morning, He died at three in the afternoon. The very time when the priests had entered into the tabernacle, the temple hour, and they were making the proper sacrifices, our Savior died shedding precious blood exactly in parallel to the time frame of Exodus chapter 12. Beyond that, you'll notice with me the scene of the application of the blood. In the Old Testament, they were to apply that blood, not once, not twice, but three times, the side post and the top post, the lintel of the door. And only in that way did they meet the requirements of what God had said. It is the case in the New Testament, the blood of Christ must be applied if it's to be effective for you and me. I realize that there have been some through the centuries who have had the nerve to teach that Christ's blood isn't effective for all. Anathema may such never be considered because we realize the blood of Christ can cleanse all sin, 1 John 2, 2. And Jesus Himself urged all to come to Him because didn't He say that He could in fact make burdens easy and yokes light? Matthew 11, verses 29 and 30. Notice the application of that blood here. That blood was applied in the following way. 
when Paul spoke to the elders of the church in Ephesus in Acts 20, 28, he said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. That blood, you see, of Christ was applied, but it was applied to this building, not arbitrary buildings. It was applied to that organization, that body you and I call the church. Those who are then inside that building are the ones that should be saved from the awful concourse of sin. We might pause to ask, are you in the building faithfully? I don't mean this physical construction. I mean the body, the organization of the saved. Wasn't it true that Paul in Ephesians 5, 23, speaking of Christ, said He is the Savior of the body. If you're not in the body, you're not saved. No matter what men may think. Notice the parallel again. The blood was applied to the doorpost and Christ's blood has been applied to the great door of the church. He called Himself the door, didn't He, in John 10, beginning in verse 1? That blood has been applied and it's still effective. Perhaps another parallel is in order. As you and I think about the specific way then in which that blood is applied individually to you and me, isn't it sweet to read verses that detail that idea for us? How sad it would be if you and I were left to our own mental cogitations, our own mental thinking about what that might or might not mean. Thankfully, the Bible tells us. Though Christ's blood purchased that church and thus those that are members therein are blessed with deliverance from sin... You and I are told some more pertinent matters about the nature of Christ's blood. I would ask you to develop it with me like these. In 1 Corinthians 12 verse 13, we are there expressly told that we are baptized into one body. And so not only was that blood of Christ such that it purchased the church, we now read that in the act of baptism, we are baptized into one body. But that baptism, of course, is described in that verse in Romans 6, verses 3 and 4 like this. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? As Paul had begun the chapter with those questions, he then continued, We are buried with Him by baptism into death. That like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. There's an, an intimate connection then between the blood of Christ, His death, and baptism. For it's in baptism that we are buried with Him. Not buried because of Him, it says buried with Him. We enter in that act into an association, a contacting with Him, described like this. Galatians 3 verses 26 and 7. You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ, you've put on Christ. In the Roman letter, it says we're buried with Him. In the Galatian letter, we notice on that powerful occasion that it is in Christ that we, that in baptism, we put on Christ. One by one, the connections are complete. So much so that we're prepared to notice this. The... Israelites were told in Exodus 12, 22, stay in the house. Whatever house it was that you put that blood on the doorpost and that house in which you ate the Passover lamb, you stay in the house all night long. 
may we be quick to observe, we must stay in the house today. That house of God, 1 Timothy 3.15. That house that is the church. A one-time entrance needs to be such that we remain inside that house. The Bible does warn us that it's possible to exit the house. It's possible to no longer be in the church. We can be lost. Though some in the world think that's not possible, they're deceived. Though there are some who would be quick to say such a thing is far from the greatness and mightiness of God, the Bible says otherwise. Peter himself expressly said, The latter end with them is worse than the beginning. And he spoke about some who had come out of the corruption of the world and were in the very condition of being saved. And yet they went back to the world and they were in worse shape than they were at the beginning. It is true, you and I can leave the church. In fact, we can hastily exit if we allow Satan his way. May you and I have the confidence to stay in the house. Perhaps two final observations. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Salvation was theirs if they stayed in the house. Oh, how sweet it is to think about being saved. Those of us who are preachers find ourselves on occasion in some, on one hand, delightful circumstances. On the other hand, very sorrowful ones. And I'm talking about a funeral. I have been asked to officiate at the funeral services for someone who I knew was not saved. I knew that they had never been baptized. I knew that they were not members of the Lord's body. I knew that they had not given their life in faithful obedience. May I ask, what do you say at a funeral like that? What can you say from the eternal standpoint to offer any permanent and lasting comfort to the members of that family? One is about speechless. On the other hand, consider a member of the body of Christ. Someone as far as you knew, for years they had been a faithful member. They were baptized long ago. They gave their life in open confidence to the nature of the commandments of the New Testament. They served the Lord with love. They loved God and His church. They loved His Word. They didn't absent themselves the services. They loved wherever the name of God and His Son was lifted high. That kind of funeral is not that difficult to preach. It is a time in which we aren't trying to say we're the judge of that individual, but in light of what we see in the Word of God, we at least can have a strong element of confidence. May I say, tonight in which condition are you and I? If someone's called upon tomorrow to preach your funeral or mine, will they have an easy time with it? Or will it be, in fact, a very hollow circumstance? Perhaps finally... You notice that if there was no blood to be seen, then there was death. Isn't it still true in the New Testament? If you and I aren't in the house, if the blood of Christ isn't seen, if that blood doesn't cover you or me, then all that awaits is what the Bible calls the second death. And the parallel now is almost complete. As you and I go from Exodus 12 to all the way to Revelation 20, we have a portrait of the second death. And we find there these individuals who themselves were not prepared to meet the Master that says they had not submitted to the first resurrection and hence they were now subject to the second death. That first resurrection is this baptism. If you are 
one to participate first in that first resurrection, then you need not fear the second death. Have you attended to the first resurrection? Have you been baptized for the remission of your sins, Acts 2.38? Are you one that's now raised to walk in newness of life, Romans 6, 3 and 4? Have you submitted to that operation of God, Colossians 2.12? Are you one who's placed confidence in 1 Peter 3, verse 21, where it says, Baptism now saves us. You see, baptism is such a sweet ceremony in many ways. It is real. It's far more than any kind of mere outward symbol because it takes us, among other things, back to the very reality of when I see the blood, I'll pass over you. And it is in baptism we contact the blood, and that's what God then can see. It might be there's one or more in this audience tonight for which all is not well with your soul. Maybe you've never submitted to baptism, and so God cannot see the blood of His Son. You've never covered yourself with it. Or it may be that though once you did, you no longer are covered with it. You've taken it off. You've taken it off much like a garment, and you now wear your own sinfulness again. You need to take care of that matter tonight. If we could help you in that way to pray for the forgiveness of sins known publicly, to help you be rededicated to the faithful cause of your Master, we'd be happy to do it. The plan of salvation is issued forth this evening. And again, we'd be delighted to assist you. May I say one last time, when I say the blood, I will pass over you. What does God see when He looks your direction? If He doesn't see the blood of His Son, take care of that shortcoming. Take care of that set of sins and faults this very night. And do so at once while together we stand and while we sing.